As a, as a child, he grew up in a religious home, uh, but he was not a Christian. And he lived with an immense amount of guilt uh, under a weight of legalism that he could not uh, satisfy. He went to college at Bucknell, and there while he's Bucknell, at Bucknell, he, he befriended a group of intervarsity students. That was a campus ministry there. Um, and he sort of lived this double life where while he was with these intervarsity students, he pretended to be a Christian on the outside. And he would engage and discuss and debate and participate in all these Bible studies. But on the inside, his heart did not believe. And in his mind, his mind did not assent to the truth of Christianity. Well, they debated, they discussed, they learned, Tim wrestled with God, and everything changed on April 21st, 1970. Uh, And that morning, his friend, Bruce, woke up with Tim waiting at the foot of his bed. Now, I kind of wondered how they remember the exact date, but I bet if your buddy just came into your room and like woke up and was at the foot of your bed, you would probably remember that date too. And he said that that morning when he woke up and Tim was waiting there, that everything had changed. At that night, Tim had quit wrestling with God and he'd given his life over to Jesus to be his Lord and Savior. And the writer goes on to say, what happened to Tim that night? Did he have all of his intellectual hurdles satisfied? Uh, Did he have all of his questions answered about evil, suffering, judgment? Did they all suddenly disappear? Uh, And the answer is no. That on that night, Tim saw his need for Jesus. He saw the weight of legalism that was crushing him. He saw how he could not fulfill the law himself. And he cried out for God to save him. Despite his flaws and his failures, the word of God brought him to a God who loved him and forgave him. And no longer would Tim be the judge of God. He allowed God to be the judge of him. And that God is just and loving. And Keller describes a change that took place in him after this in just the way that he read the Bible. And he says it this way, during college, the Bible came alive in a way that was hard to describe. The best way I can put it is that before the change, I poured over the Bible, questioning it and analyzing it. But after the change, it was as if the Bible or maybe someone through the Bible began pouring over me and questioning me and analyzing me. That made me think about these miracles that we've been studying. Over the last several weeks, we've repeatedly seen that Jesus has shown through these mighty miracles that he is the Lord of heaven and earth, and he is a loving and merciful Savior. He is the Lord of healing and the Savior of suffering. He is the Lord of the storm and the Savior of the fearful. He is the Lord of their forgiveness of, of forgiveness and the Savior of the guilty. Well, as we come to these last two miracles and we see that he is the God who can open the eyes of the blind and loose the tongue of the mute, what I want us to do this morning is instead of us asking questions of the passage, instead of us questioning the passage, I want us to allow the passage to question us. So I think this passage asks us three very simple 
but challenging questions. And there are these. Do you see Jesus? Do you need Jesus? And do you believe in Jesus? Do you see Jesus? Do you believe in Jesus? And do you need Jesus? And what I believe is to the degree that we see Jesus as the Lord and the Savior of our lives, and to the degree that we come and we confess our need for him, and to the degree that we believe in him as our Lord and Savior, we will experience the joy and the love and the freedom and the gladness that Charlie read about in Isaiah 35, 5 through 6. Right? That, that our eyes will be opened, that our ears will be unstopped, that our tongues will be loosened, that our legs will be strengthened, and we will sing of the joy of the Lord like never before. So let's look at those three questions together this morning. First, we're going to look at this question. Do you see Jesus? Kids, uh, here in a little bit, I want you to listen for a story about the size of the universe. Story about the size of the universe. First, let's ask ourselves, do we see Jesus? So Jesus is walking along after these healings and two blind men cry out to him, have mercy on us, son of David, right? So right away, you kind of see the irony of the passage, right? These two guys are blind. They can't see, (laughs) right? And yet they're the only ones, they're the first ones in the entire book of Matthew that see Jesus correctly, This is the first time we're nine chapters in, and this is the first time that Matthew tells us that someone called Jesus the son of David. Now, what does that mean, son of David? Well, in the Old Testament, God made David the king over Israel, and he made some amazing promises to David. And one of those promises was that a son of David would rule on God's throne forever. So from that point, the Jews started looking for a son of David that would be their king, that would defeat their enemies, and that would rule forever. So they were all supposed to be looking for the son of David, and yet the first people to see the son of David are who? Blind people, right? It's like uh, if, if of, uh, a bunch of adults were to look at a, you know, a Where's Waldo book or something like that, and, and the adults are saying, hey, where's Waldo? You're, you're looking around for Waldo, and a kid walks up and says, oh, look, there's Waldo right there, right? Now, there's something about being an adult that makes Where's Waldo trickier than if you were a 12-year-old or a 6-year-old, right? These blind people see that Jesus is the son of David, that he's the fulfillment of these prophecies. Later, they even call him Lord, Now, ask yourself, who were the people who should have seen that Jesus was the son of David? The Pharisees. And yet you get to the end of the passage, and what do the Pharisees say about Jesus? They say, oh, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. They think Jesus is a double agent, a spy, that on the one hand, he looks like he's working for the kingdom of God by doing all these healings, but on the other hand, he's really working for Satan. They don't see who Jesus is. Pharisees were experts in the law. They studied the law. They memorized the law. They added to the law. And yet when the time came for the son of David to save them, they missed him. They missed him. I think this is is a warning to all of us who think we see Jesus clearly. We have to ask ourselves, do we really see Jesus? Right? It's easy 
for us to, to see Jesus as merely a good teacher, to read the Sermon on the Mount and say, Jesus is a good teacher. I'm going to follow some of his teachings because they're wise and they're practical, but not see Jesus as the king of a great kingdom who deserves for you to give all of your life to him. It's easy to see Jesus as a great healer, someone who can make me happy, healthy, and wealthy, but not see Jesus as the Lord and giver of life who demands that we love him with all of our heart, all of our mind, all our soul, and all our strength. It's easy to see Jesus as the, the, the God who stops the storm. And so whenever we hit the storms of life, we put on Jesus like a life preserver so he gets us through it. But then the rest of the time we're on the beach, <laughs> right? When life is good, we don't need Jesus. When life is bad, we need Jesus. It's easy to see Jesus who uh, drives out the demons and he defeats all the bad people. But it's hard to see the evil in our own hearts. It's easy to see Jesus as Savior, but not as Lord, right? But as we've looked, as we've seen time and again, Jesus is Lord, and he is Savior. And for you to experience the love and the joy and the freedom that he offers you, you have to have both of those things together. Uh, there was a, a legendary intervarsity teacher named Barbara Boyd and, and back in the 70s, and, and she described it this way. She says, if you want to invite me to your house, and you say, come in, Barbara, but stay out, Boyd. I can't do that because I'm Barbara Boyd. You either have to take all of me or none of me, but you can't just cut me in half. At the same time, if you want Jesus to come into your house, right? You can't say, I want Jesus, but not Christ because he's Jesus Christ. You can't say, I want Jesus the helper. I want uh, what does she say? I want Jesus, uh, who's the, the, the guy who helps me in hard times. I want loving Jesus, but I don't want holy Jesus. I don't want powerful Jesus. You can't do that. You either get all of Jesus or you get none of Jesus. She said, think about it this way. She said, the distance from the earth to the sun is 96 million miles. 96 million miles. If that distance were the thickness of a sheet of paper, the distance from Earth to the nearest star would be 70 feet high. 70 feet high. The distance from Earth to the sun, 70 feet high. Now, just the diameter of our little galaxy would be a stack of paper 310 miles high. That's, that's incomprehensible. Right? Yet... Hebrews says that Jesus holds together the universe with a word of his power. Jesus is so powerful that he holds together the universe with a pinky. If that's how powerful it is, if, that's, if, that's the, if he's the Lord of space, time, and dimension, then you cannot invite him to be your personal assistant. You can't invite him in the car and put him in the back seat. To really see Jesus, to really experience the love and the joy and the freedom of Jesus is to let that powerful person that holds the universe together with his pinky into the driver's seat of all of your life. Do you really see Jesus? 
Are, do you really let him into all of your life? Is he really Lord of all of you so that he can be Savior of all of you? That's the first thing that we see in this passage. It, it asks us, do we, do we see Jesus? And the second thing it asks us is, do we see our need for Jesus? Do you need Jesus? So I poured over this all week and I just kept asking myself, what's the difference between the blind men and the Pharisees? These blind men are blind and they know it, right? They know they can't see. They know they're, they know they're broken. They know they're hurting. They know that they're sinful because in that day to, to, be, to have a physical malady like blindness to them, it was a sign of sin. It was a sign of their brokenness. Right? In fact, the great rabbis, the great teachers, they wouldn't have touched a blind person. They wouldn't have gone near a blind person. Blindness was a sign of uncleanness. And so that drove people away. So they were physically blind and they knew it, but the Pharisees are spiritually blind and they don't know it. They're blind and they don't know it. They don't see it. They've got a massive blind spot over their hearts. They don't know that they need Jesus. And what you see time and time again throughout the Bible is that Jesus is Lord and Savior for people who have mental and physical and spiritual brokenness that they see and they're willing to acknowledge it. But to the people who can't see their sin, who have a blind spot covering their hearts and their their minds and their lives, he can't save them. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is, Do we need Jesus? Do we see that we need Jesus? Well, look at the way the Pharisees respond to Jesus. And I think their response gives us a little diagnosis about about where we are, right? What did the Pharisees do? They scoffed at Jesus. They said he casts out demons by the prince of demons. They were suspicious. They were skeptical. They scoffed at him. These were the religious elite. They were serious about the law. They were, they were ritually pure. They were legalists. Like I said earlier, they, helped, they, they put laws on top of laws to try to earn God's love and acceptance. And that made them self-righteous and it made them proud. And it meant that when Jesus came and he started healing lame people and deaf people and blind people, they missed it. They were blinded by their self-righteousness. They were blinded by their legalism. And because of that, they missed the love and the grace and the freedom that Jesus brought. They were looking for a Lord and not a Savior. They missed the fulfillment. They they should have known Isaiah 35, 5, and 6. They should have known Isaiah 35. They should have known that Jesus was the fulfillment and they missed it. I think we have to be careful because most of us in here today were the religious people, right? It is easy for us to miss Jesus because our lives are so put together. They're so pretty. They're so nice. We're good, hardworking, red-blooded Americans that think the right way and vote the right way and act the right way. And because of that, guess what? We miss Jesus. We don't see how much we need him. We come to church. We pray a little. We read our Bibles a little. We're nice to people. We give a little. We serve a little. We encourage people. And it is easy for us to confuse 
that religiosity with Christianity and never get Jesus. Uh, Richard Lovelace was a professor at Gordon-Conwell Seminary, and he specialized in revivals and renewals within the Christian church. And this is what he says about the church. He says, the church loses its way when it confuses law and gospel. Christians know in their head that God accepts them by grace through faith in Jesus, but they don't always live that way. Instead, we draw our assurance of acceptance from our sincerity, from our past experience, from our performance, from our conscience, or from our disobedience. He says, we need revivals because they wean us off our natural-born proclivity to works righteousness instead of living in light of the gospel of grace. You hear that? Who needs a revival? The church, the religious people, us. <laughs> we need revival. We, re we need renewal. And what does it come through? It comes through experiencing the unmerited grace of God. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about revivals in the Christian church over the last few weeks. If you, if you kind of follow Christian subculture, Christian talk, uh, there was a revival uh, that took place in Asbury University. It's a small Christian college. And, I, and I'll admit, when I first heard about it, I was skeptical. I was. I, I scoffed. I did you know, what the Pharisees did. How about you? Maybe some of you. Maybe you're still skeptical. Well, being a pastor, it's kind of my job to like read about these things and learn about them. So I started, I went to Christianity Today and I read some articles on Christianity Today. I was like, that's a pretty reputable group. And the, and the people on there were, were testifying that there were actually people confessing sin, that it seemed like it was sincere, that it wasn't built up by social media or, or smoke and lights. Okay, maybe it's real. Then I read on Gospel Coalition, uh, a website that we very much uh, sort of align ourselves with. And they sent a writer there to investigate it. He said the same thing. He, he said that, man, it was, it was organized. It was thoughtful. Uh, it wasn't built up by social media. It was prayerful. And it, it looked like people who were worshiping Jesus and confessing sin. It, it sounded very Presbyterian. It was done decently in good order. <laughs> and I thought to myself, you know, maybe the, the problem isn't necessarily with what's going on in Asbury. Maybe the problem is what's going on in my heart. Am I really skeptical about revivals because I need a revival? Am I, do I really scoff at the work of Jesus because I don't see and experience the work of Jesus in my own heart? And I think this passage forces us to look at our lives and go, do I see my need for Jesus? Or is my, my legalism and my religiosity and my good works, is it covering up my need for the unmerited grace of God? You see, one of the things that we believe about the gospel is the gospel is not just the ABCs of Christianity. The gospel is the A to Z of Christianity. So if you're here this morning and you're, you're, you're a Christian, but you are dry as a bone, then where do you go? You go back to the gospel. If you're here this morning and you're a new Christian, you want to grow, where do you go? You go back to the basics of the gospel. If you've been a Christian your, your, your whole life, 
Uh, and, and you've got years and years of wisdom and life experience, but you want to continue to plunge yourself and experience the love and the joy and the freedom of Jesus Christ, where do you go? You go back to the gospel. You say, this person is my Lord and Savior, and I need him every hour, every day. I need him to change my heart and my mind so that I experience his love and his grace, so that he opens my eyes and he opens my ears, and he strengthens me, and he loosens my tongue so I can make a joyful noise to the Lord like Jay Stevenson every Sunday morning. Do you see your need for Jesus? And that leads us to our third question. Do you believe in Jesus? The blind men cried out for Jesus to save them. And then Jesus does something curious. Apparently, he kept walking. <laughs> like, imagine that. If you see the son of David, you see, you think, you, you know about the son of David, the Savior, the Lord, and you cry out for him for mercy, and he keeps walking. What do you do? Well, you follow him. So they followed him into the house, and Jesus gets in the house, and then he turns around, and he asks him, do you believe that I am able to heal you? And they say, yes, Lord. And then Jesus, in a sign of compassion and vulnerability, crossing a, a boundary that no other rabbi would have crossed, he touches their eyes and heals them. He says, according to your faith, be it done to you. In other words, <laughs> these people that didn't see were healed because in their hearts they saw that Jesus was the only thing that could save them. And they believed in him for salvation. They had faith in Jesus. They trusted him and they were healed. And it, this healing was gracious. Think about this. <laughs> they say, yes, Lord. So they, they, like, that's a right confession. That's good and true. And then Jesus says, okay, I don't want you to tell anybody else about this. And that's a whole other issue why he tells them that, that we can't go into this morning. But he tells them, don't tell anybody else about this. And what do they do? They go tell everybody. <laughs> they disobey Jesus. Right after they just confessed him as Lord, they've been healed. That should give you a lot of encouragement. That encouraged me. <laughs> the healing was gracious. Their faith wasn't perfect. It's like we saw last week. Jesus healed the, the, a woman who touched his cloth. She had a small amount of faith. And I was really encouraged because there was, a, there was actually someone here last week who had never been to church before. And I, and, I, and I heard that and I reached out to the person who brought them to get some feedback. And, and I said, what did she think? And they said, she said, well, she loved the community, but she was really confused as to how Jesus could heal somebody who had small faith. And I said, yes. <laughs> She came in contact with the gospel because the world tells you that you say, you're saved based on your strength and your power and your merit. And the gospel says, no, you're saved by grace. And we see it here again with the blind man. They were healed by grace. And what we see time and time again in all of these miracles that we've seen is that these are visible pictures of the gospel. They're visible pictures of the gospel that anyone who comes to Jesus in their sin and their suffering, and they ask him to heal them and save them in faith, 
He does it. We're saved by grace through faith. It is nothing that we have done. Hear me, because the little Pharisee in your heart is going to start chirping at you when you walk out those doors and say, oh, you did a really good job today. You were great. Jesus loves you because of that. No, 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 no. He loves you because he loves you. He loves you because he loves you. Thank you. And that faith, the faith demonstrates, uh, it demonstrates itself in moving to Jesus and asking for healing, right? Uh, faith demonstrated itself in a leper who, li- who risked rejection and touched Jesus' cloak. It, faith risked itself in, in disciples who came to Jesus and asked him to save them from a storm in a paralytic that tore a hole in a roof to come and get to Jesus. Uh, faith demonstrated itself in a tax collector who left behind all of his wealth and all of his money to follow Jesus. Over and over and over again, we've seen in all these miracles that faith has demonstrated itself in moving towards Jesus. So I ask yourself, ask yourself, do you believe in Jesus? Do you have faith in him? Do you see your sin and suffering and move towards him for healing? And I think that no matter where we are, that, that shows us how to respond. Uh, if you have been in the crowd, if you're here this morning, you've been in the crowd. You've been coming, you've been watching, you've been hearing, you've been listening. What this does is this invites us to move from marveling at Jesus to repenting and believing in Jesus. See, it's not enough just to be in the crowd. It's not enough just to be near Jesus. Jesus invites you to know him by faith and repentance in him. If you've been scoffing and skeptical like a Pharisee, that this is an invitation for Jesus to save you, for him to rescue you from the the, the burden of legalism. I heard a great testimony that illustrated this recently. It was actually someone from our church. Uh, she was sharing her testimony. She said that when she grew up, uh, she grew up with a very uh, interesting church background, that's how I'll say it. Uh, her, her dad was Catholic, so on Sunday morning, she would go to the Catholic church. But then she had friends in the Mormon youth group and the Baptist youth group, and so she would alternate on Wednesday nights between going to the Mormon youth group and the Baptist youth group. So in any given week, she'd be hearing Catholic teaching, Mormon teaching, and Baptist teaching all at the same time. Needless to say, she felt very confused and legalistic. And the burden of the law was crushing to her. Well, she, she moved far away. Imagine that. <laughs> she went to college. And when she went to college, she found a Bible study. And there in that Bible study, they were going through the book of Hebrews And week after week, as she read and studied and learned in the book of Hebrews that Jesus was her great high priest and that Jesus was her great sacrifice, she saw that he fulfilled the law for her. And the gospel is a gospel of grace, that being a Christian is a message of grace. And she said when when her eyes were opened and her ears were opened, her words, not mine, She ran through campus leaping for joy. The lame leaped. 
If you long for restoration and revival, then come to Jesus in faith. He invites you. If, if you're here this morning and you're like, I just, I just want to grow, I want to be strengthened, I want to be near Jesus, then faith reaches for him like a woman bleeding. Faith begs him like a leper. Faith pursues him like the paralytic. And faith cries out like the blind man. Uh, John Calvin says that prayer is the chief act of faith. Um, that, that prayer is a warm embrace of Jesus. Uh, and Jack Miller, someone I study and, and, and learn from a lot, says that revivals and renewals start with prayer. If you want to start a revival in our church or in the city, then it starts with praying. If you want to start with renewal in your heart, then it starts with prayer. That's how Jesus is going to save us and save this world. So I ask you these three questions. Do you see Jesus, not a Jesus of your own making, the real Jesus who is Lord and Savior? Do you need Jesus? Do you see your spiritual brokenness? And do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe he is the Lord and Savior of sinners and that he restores us by grace through faith in him? If so, let's go to him in prayer. Let's ask him to heal us and give us the joy and the freedom of the gospel that he promises. Please pray with me.